Hi everyone, and welcome to the Eskim Next Educational Podcast Program. My name is Ahmed Zahir. I'm a Senior Clinical Fellow of Adult Intensive Care at the Oxford University Hospitals in the United Kingdom, and an Eskim Next Committee member. With all the pleasure, joining me today, Dr. Claire McEwen, an intensive care renal and a critical care echocardiography consultant at Oxford University Hospitals in the United Kingdom. Claire completed her medical training at Oxford University, where also she obtained a Doctor of Philosophy degree in hemodialysis physiology and modeling. She has a keen interest in both the acute and chronic management of renal transplant patients. So Claire, welcome to the program. Today, we are going to discuss one of the most challenging and interesting topics in our daily practice in critical care, which is challenges of managing the renal transplant patients in intensive care. Kidney transplantation is the most common solid organ transplantation performed worldwide. Up to 6% of kidney transplant recipients experience a life-threatening complication that requires ICU admission mainly in the late post-transplantation period. Acute respiratory failure and septic shock are the main reasons for ICU admission. There are many other reasons which will be discussed in this podcast with Claire. We will also discuss the common opportunistic infections and their impact on our patients and how to treat them. Importantly, the impact of critical illness on graft function is really a worry. Throughout the ICU stay, acute kidney injury is common, and about 40% of recipients might require renal replacement therapy. In these type of patients, hospital mortality can reach up to 30%, and this will correlate with their acute illness and the reason for their ICU admission. So Claire, how does the changing phase of renal transplantation affects us in intensive care? Well, renal transplantations, um, increasingly the uh, modality of choice for patients of end-stage renal failure, and uh, we are uh, accepting recipients who are older and more comorbid into the programme as evidence accrues that even um, older patients or patients with obesity or or cardiac disease, they still benefit from having um, a kidney transplant. We are also using... um, kidneys from donors who are older with more comorbidities, um, uh, matching those to patients who are older with more comorbidities, both for utilitarian purposes to maximise the the, um, use of organs that are being donated, but also because, um, again, we see that this is far more beneficial for patients to receive a kidney like this than to remain on hemodialysis. But as a consequence of using both donors and recipients who, who are older and more um, complicated, um, we do have more post-op complications and, you know, for example, cardiac events um, and more need a HDU or an ICU bed after, after kidney transplantation. In addition, we're also using more potent immunosuppression, which is the benefit that acute rejection now is fairly um, rare, but infectious complications are more common and the most common causes of death after renal transplantation now are both cardiac and infectious. 
um, rather than um, end-stage renal failure per se. And, and finally, um, renal transplant patients are living longer. Uh, for example, in the UK, we'd expect that um, after five years out from a deceased on a transplant, nearly 90% of patients would be alive with a functioning graft. So there are a lot more kidney transplant patients in the population. And the combination of all these things means that we will encounter them more and more commonly in the intensive care setting. What are the immediate complications of renal transplantation? Well, as with any operation, you have the risk of the general anaesthetic itself, um, particularly complications um, related to uh, renal transplantation would include uh, drug dosing, um, access, because dialysis patients um, or peritoneal dialysis patients will have multiple procedures to gain access before with fistulas or um, central uh, dialysis catheters. You also have to consider when the most recent hemodialysis or peritoneal dialysis was and think about blood pressure, electrolytes and fluid balance abnormalities. But beyond the immediate um, intra-op period, this key complications can be divided into surgical or um, medical complications. So on the surgical side, thrombosis of the graft is very feared, but it's rare. Um, the vascular osmosis can, however, be complicated if the patients have had multiple transplants before, they've got very stiff chalky vessels, or there's more than one donor artery. So it's important within 24 hours that all kidney transplant patients do have an ultrasound scan of their graft. We can look at Doppler's the renal artery going into the kidney. Um, we can look at the ratio of the systolic and diastolic blood velocities to give us an idea of downstream perfusion and resistance in the kidney. Besides thrombosis, bleeding is obviously a risk. Um, and urine leak. It, urine leak is rare. Um, again, some anastomoses are more complicated than others. And if a patient's been anuric for a very long time, their bladder can be like a very um, fibrose, small, almost stiff walnut, and that, that obviously creates back pressure and is more likely to cause a urine leak. But most centres will put a ureteric stent in from the bladder to the renal pelvis so that it's a fairly um, rare complication. But again, it's something to be aware of. But the medical complications are far more common. Um, the most common of them is delayed graft function. And this is defined as the need for hemodialysis within the first week of renal transplantation, and it's very common. In, even in live donors, you'd expect maybe 5% um, of kidneys to, to um, have a requirement for hemodialysis in the first week before they're independent. And in the deceased donors, it's more like 30-40%. And it varies with things like how long uh, the cold ischemic time has been, so how long the kidney's been in transport in a bucket before it's transplanted into the patient, how old the donor is, how old the recipient is how long they've been on dialysis, how, how um, high the blood pressure has been in the donor, for example, before transplantation. But beyond delayed graft function, um, we're looking at just general periop complications that you see in any population. Dialysis patients or any end-stage renal failure patients are um, have a higher, higher cardiovascular morbidity than other groups due to the uremic milieu and um, kind of abnormalities in bone chemistry which means that they are at higher risk of periop cardiac events, although we do screen very carefully before listing people with um, modalities such as echo, myocardial perfusion scan or angios, but nevertheless, cardiac events are more common um, than in other groups. And also post-op, as you'd expect with any patient who's got renal problems and particularly in the delayed graft function group, electrolyte abnormalities, fluid balance abnormalities, and either hyper or hypotension can be problems.
Claire, you mentioned that there might be some sort of elect electrolyte abnormalities. How would you manage hyperkalemia perioperatively? Yeah. Well, renal transplant patients are no different from any other patients, but they do tend to tolerate hyperkalemia um, a, a little better. Um, so I wouldn't treat unless it was above six and a half as a rule. And standard emergency care is the same as for any other patient. So insulin dextrose to drive the potassium into cells, calcium gluconite to stabilize cell membranes. I'd also consider some of the newer potassium binders, um, particularly sodium zirconium or lacelma as its trade name is, can act within a, few, a couple of hours to lower the potassium by maybe 0.5 to one millimole per liter. And these don't tend to have the same side effects as the older drugs like calcium zirconium. They work both by binding the potassium in the diet, but also stimulating the secretion of potassium into the gut so they can be a useful adjunct. Now, if the patient's acidotic, then bicarbonate supplements can be very useful um, to control hyperkalemia, particularly um, in hemodialysis patients uh, who tend to be acidotic, and that's often one of the big drivers. A bicarbonate works both by driving potassium into cells, but also if a functioning kidney is present, it helps the um, secretion of um, potassium in the cortical collecting duct, so it's, it's got two ways of being effective. If there's room for fluid, 1.26% bicarbonate is useful. Otherwise, you can think about 8.4 or oral supplements. Well, probably the most powerful way to get rid of potassium is with diuretics. So really, when you're thinking about whether a patient needs hemodialysis or other forms of renal replacement therapy for hyperkalemia, it all comes down to whether they're passing urine or not. If a patient has potassium greater than 6.5 and they're not passing any urine, um, although you can do all the measures mentioned above, ultimately you probably will need to, to give them some dialysis. But if they're passing urine, then hyperkalemia can be controlled medically um, with a combination of diuretics, bicarbonate and potassium binders. In terms of blood pressure, what are the blood pressure targets should we aim for postoperatively in renal transplantation? Well, it's a controversial topic, which is largely driven by expert opinion. Um, there have been some small studies and, and retrospective studies suggesting that having a MAP greater than 90 or 80 may reduce the incidence of delayed graft function. Um, but uh, when confounded or looked into, this is more, uh, it appears more a function of the kind of comorbidities and vascular status of the either the donor or the recipient rather than um, the, the blood pressure per se. And of course, a low blood pressure is a, is a surrogate for um, perfusion to the kidney. Um, it doesn't really tell you what's happening at the microcirculatory level. Um, as, as a rule, um, would say a, a MAP of 65 as with any other patient, um, MAP greater than 75 might be preferable, but as I say, there's no strong evidence to guide it. Uh, it's important to remember that although normal kidneys do have autoregulation, um, a transplant kidney is denervated, so they won't be able to regulate their um, their own blood flow as, as well as a normal kidney. Um, in which case, it, you know that supports the idea that having a slightly higher driving pressure is preferable. How do we manage fluid balance perioperatively in renal transplantation? Well, again, this is another um, topic where there's lots of opinions and not a huge amount of evidence to guide us. 
Historically, CVP was thought to be very important um, and patients would be very heavily volume loaded before the anastomosis of the kidney into the um, recipient. Uh, and some studies did suggest that having a CVP greater than 10 would reduce delayed graft function. But now there's also studies showing that having a, such a high CVP can also be detrimental to the, to the graft and to the patient in, in general, because obviously these kind of hypervolemic states can damage the endothelial glycocalyx and cause venous hypertension. And actually, when you take into account confounders, there isn't any evidence that um, pushing a high CVP does improve graft function. And indeed, there's some studies that suggest, as I said, that um, hypervolemia can, can impair graft function for various reasons. It may even um, contribute by causing a degree of abdominal um, hypertension. So clinically, really, um, you can look at tissue perfusion, um, lactate, and all the other markers that you use for any other patient. Blood pressure we've discussed, it's probably aiming for a MAP of 75 or above is sensible, but that doesn't necessarily correlate extensional perfusion. Urine output can be useful when it's there, but remember these are kidneys that have a suffered an ischemic perfusion hit, absorb sodium and regulate itself in the same way. So it's difficult and, you know, um, judicious fluid replacement with close monitoring um, for third spacing and the development of venous hypertension is probably sensible. How do we evaluate their volume status? Um, well, as with other patients, you can do goal-directed therapy looking at, at um, stroke volume variation, um, fluid responsiveness and the various pulse contour monitors. ECHO is um, a nice non-invasive um, method of looking at fluid balance and, and cardiac um, output if you're in a centre where um, there's skill in this area. Um, so I, I like using ECHO to look for um, left atrial or wedge pressure assessments, but it, you have to bear in mind that these patients often have diastolic dysfunction too. So there's certain ways you can use to distinguish amongst them. Um, whether the IVC is large or non-collapsing in a patient with spontaneous respiration can be um, useful to know. Also, just looking at um, the, the kind of balance for left and right heart, because sometimes you can um, overfill the patient and an echo will reveal um, right-sided, um, you know, right heart dilatation or um, pressures, which, which can be detrimental to the kidney. But beyond all these um, highly technical measures, I still think um, clinical measures, tissue perfusion and daily weights and looking at um, the patient's overall fluid balance, the simple things can be the most useful. What are the additional considerations for respiratory failure in a patient with history of a renal transplant? Well, obviously renal transplant patients have the same respiratory problems as anyone else in the general population. But the additional considerations um, really um, can be divided into infection, inflammatory or um, edematous um, uh, states. So as well as cardiogenic edema, um, because all these patients are have higher, higher cardiovascular risk and they often do have diastolic dysfunction, um, they can get edema just from hypervolemia if the kidney's not functioning properly. Inflammatory states, uh, really I'm thinking about recurrence of primary diseases such as lupus, although unlikely when you're immunosuppression. Also pneumonitis, which can be a function of some of the immunosuppression drugs such as sirolimus. But the biggest category is infectious agents. And besides the most common infectious agents that can affect anyone, transplant patients, because they're immunosuppressed, um, are at risk of a, a variety of opportunistic infections.
<clears throat> now, when you're thinking about what, what infections could be causing respiratory failure, you have to think about which immunosuppressant drugs the patient's receiving, what immune defect they have, how far they are out from their transplant, what exposures they've had, their environment, and what prophylaxis they've received. So as well as common bacterial things, um, viral such as CMV is important to consider, EBV and fungal, including PCP. And when I do get a patient with um, respiratory failure and post-transplant, uh, particularly if they're in the early period or heavily immunosuppressed for, for, for example, an episode of acute rejection or had recent steroids, um, an early bronchoscopy and an early high-res CT can be very useful. And an early bronchoscopy, I would look for an extended panel, a PCR microscopy, including fungal, galactomannan, and the serum. Uh, sending CMV PCR and, and beta-D-glucan can be particularly useful. Uh, in terms of which, uh, which period they're most at risk for, in the early, you know, the first month, really they're at just at risk of any standard post-op infections anyone else is, unless you've been unlucky enough to give a patient a kidney which is carrying an infectious agent such as TB, in which case that can manifest quickly. Recipient um, reactivation of latent infections such as hepatitis B or TB or, or strongyloides, that tends to happen, you know, two to six months. And then after six months, you're really looking again at things that happen in the normal population. So the timing um, from transplantation and also the prophylaxis that's being used um, because we most centers will give PCP prophylaxis for a year and CMV prophylaxis three to six months. So you don't really see it in those periods, but you do get a, a kind of a, a rise afterwards. These are all things to take into account when you're looking at a patient who's coming into ITU with respiratory failure with a history of transplant. What are the common immunosuppressant drugs we will encounter? So we use two main uh, categories of um, immunosuppression for renal transplant. At the time that the transplant is um, inserted and reperfused, patients will receive an induction agent with a, usually with a monoclonal antibody. Um, in this country, most commonly is CAMPATH, which is an anti-CD52 monoclonal antibody which um, targets all mature lymphocytes plus dendritic cells, natural killer cells and monocytes. Um, and it, it's very potent. Um, the risk of acute rejection is low, but it does cause a long lasting immune defect. Um, and when you look even a year, one year, two years down the line, although your innate immune system recovers fairly quickly, you'll still have defects in T cell populations for a, for a long time. Um, alternatives to CAMPATH in this country and worldwide are the anti-IL-2 receptor drugs, such as basiliximab. These are less potent than CAMPATH, and they do carry a higher risk of rejection, but probably less risk of some of the infections. Um, IL-2 uh, is the, one of the um, key cytokines for T-cell proliferation, and that's how that works. Other countries, not so much the UK or Europe, but you, um, will use ATGs and, uh, as opposed to CAMPATH. ATG, anti-thymocyte globulin, um, has a disadvantage that you need to have a central line and it is associated with cytokine release syndrome when you give it. Uh, and you do have to give it more than, uh, you know, more than one day. You have to give it several days targeting your um, lymphocyte counts. But those are the induction agents that are in general use. Following that, patients are given maintenance immunosuppression. Now, these come in three categories. The first are calcineurin inhibitors. These are uh, drugs which um, 
one way or another will uh, reduce transcription via calcineurin, which is a phosphatase of um, key cytokines, which are involved in um, T-cell proliferation. We have tacrolimus or cyclosporin, which is an older one. Um, these drugs um, are kind of staple now for all patients of renal transplant and they can, their levels can be monitored. You do a trough level before the dose is taken. Second drug will often be added onto that and that will be an anti-proliferative agent or a drug that inhibits the purinergic cycle and that tends to be azathioprine or mycophenolate. Mycophenolate is a more modern important one. Um, and uh, finally, steroids. So nearly all centers will give methylprednisolone at the time of induction along with your monoclonal antibodies. But actually we're moving increasingly towards steroid sparing after that. So while some centers will leave patients on long-term low-dose steroids, um, increasingly, and it's been shown that if you give an induction agent as a CAMPATH, that, that, that there's no need for steroids, increasingly steroids are weaned off uh, either straight away with, within a few days, or in this country, if, if azalexamlegamab is given, then we might give them within a few weeks. Uh, but steroids are increasingly avoided because of their metabolic profile and um, long-term side effects. And because we have now been showing that they're not, um, they're not as necessary with the more potent induction agents that we have. How should we manage the immunosuppression in a sick transplant patient? Well, again, there's not a huge amount of evidence to guide this, but expert opinion um, would suggest that first, if you've got a, a sick patient with um, an infectious complication, then stopping or reducing the antiproliferative agent, um, i.e. the mycophenolate or the azathioprine, which, as I've just said, interrupts um, purinergic, um, purinergic cycles and, and hence um, proliferation of uh, immune cells. Stopping that is reasonable. Um, in terms of the tacrolimus or the cyclosporin, which will be the second class of agents most patients are on, we can either leave that on as, as monotherapy or you can maybe add a low dose of steroids, for example, five nights of prednisolone to, to cover. All of this should be discussed, obviously, with the renal transplant team looking after the patient. And in extreme situations for the patient, you, you know, this is life-threatening, the patient is dying of infection, there's no point dying with a functioning graft, then we would suggest stopping the tacrolimus or cyclosporin outright. We, as I say, you can monitor the, um, the, the doses, so you can aim for a low level to start with, but um, if the patient's dying, then stopping them, stopping it altogether and risking the kidney is absolutely the right thing to do. And actually, when patients are that sick, they tend not to reject their, their, their kidneys. Um, and it's always got to be life before life before graft. When do you worry about PCP or CMV in a transplant patient? Yes, well, as we discussed earlier, some of it is related to the timing after transplant and some of it's related to um, the prophylaxis that's been given. So thinking about PCP in particular, uh, in before we had prophylaxis, which tends to be cotrimoxibol um, for most patients, before we had prophylaxis, PCP was very common in the first year after transplant. Um, now, because patients have prophylaxis for the first year, um, it's most common in the second year of transplant. That's not a rebound effect. It's not any higher than in the patients that didn't have prophylaxis. And absolute levels are still low, about 0.6%. But that second year after transplant is probably the higher risk period. But there's a lifelong increased risk of PCP, and it's something that should always be considered, even in patients who are 10, 15 years out from the transplant, 
if they present with the relevant symptoms, which are a dry cough, a fever, and bilateral chest infiltrates. Patients are also at particular risk if they've had um, steroids for any reason, so more than a month of 30 mg or, or, or prednisone or equivalent, um, that that's a significant risk factor for PCP. And if patients have been treated for rejection recently or had another reason for intensification of immunosuppression, that's another um, an area we'd have to think about um, PCP being a bigger risk factor. And those patients really, if they've been treated with hydrosteroids like that, should have PCP prophylaxis given again. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's kind of the key period for PCP. And for CMV, um, again, it varies depending on um, the prophylaxis given. So most centers will give between three to six months of prophylaxis against CMV, depending on the baseline CMV status of the recipient. And in the few weeks after stopping the prophylaxis, that's when patients are most likely to get um, CMV disease. The CMV is a, is a difficult one because you have, um, asymptomatic CMV replication in the blood, which is really just a sign that you're giving too much immunosuppression and doesn't necessarily mean that you have to treat. Um, then you have CMV viremia, where the patient has um, fevers and, and systemic symptoms. And most seriously of all, you have CMV disease, where the CMV is replicating in target tissues, which can include lung, kidney or, or gut. Um, and you can only really diagnose CMV disease by a biopsy, which uh, other than gut cases are not often done. So it does require clinical acumen and, and a degree of suspicion um, as, to, as to when um, the patient's likely to have CMV disease. In terms of CMV in, in the respiratory system, which is possibly most relevant to ICU, uh, there's some people who believe that doing CMV titers in the BAL and comparing it to CMV titers in the blood can give you an idea as to whether there's CMV disease in, in the lung. We have very good treatments for CMV. So valgancyclovir is a prodrug for gancyclovir and it's got excellent oral bioavailability um, and it's very effective for um, CMV nearly all of the time, apart from rare cases where we have gancyclovir resistance. Uh, the only times really that we need to go to IV gancyclovir over um, Bangansyclovir is when you have severity of the gut or you're worried about absorption, but often in life-threatening cases, you will go for um, you go for gansyclovir straight off. If a renal transplant patient required filtration, is there any consideration or precautions in the context of their critical illness? Well, really, uh, uh, transplant patients are much like any other patient, but the only specific thing to worry about um, when you're offering renal replacement therapy to someone who's got a transplant is, is access. So we'd encourage you to avoid the subclavian veins as um, points of insertion for catheters, just because of the risk of stenosis, which can take out a whole upper limb for future access. Um, if a patient does have an existing fistula, if you have skilled um, nurses, would advise needling and using that for the dialysis rather than um, taking more access. But in terms of um, modality um, or type of type of um, renal replacement therapy, it doesn't really differ from any other patient. Finally, Claire, thank you so much for your contribution to the Eskim Next Educational Podcast program and have a nice day.